Well, you guys turn in your Bibles as I turn in mine to John chapter 16 this morning. John chapter 16 is where we're at this morning. Um, can't say how excited I am to see people in the pews this morning. I mean, this is great. I don't have to preach to a camera. Uh, so if you find me just looking at the camera, that's a habit from the last three months um, of doing that. So hopefully that will not happen. But I'm uh, excited that you guys are able to be here this morning and that we were able to worship together in person this morning. So thank you all for coming out and bearing with us through this time as we uh, work through, you know, phase one um, is what we're calling this. As we work through phase one and as we begin to, to slowly open up as a church and, and gather again and, and have other things that are taking place. So I'm glad that you guys were able to be here today. Uh, so how are we aided in accomplishing our mission? John chapter 16 is where we are at. How are we aided in accomplishing our mission to make disciples? I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 15. We'll pray. And then we'll dive in. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and, they will, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to gather once again as the church. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for this time. We're thankful for your word. And, and God, as we open your word this morning, as we explore your word this morning, God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us, God, that you would motivate us to be a church, to be a people who are on mission for you. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know what makes an action movie exciting? No matter what type of movie that might be. It might be a bank heist movie, or it might be a, a race car movie, or it might be a, a war movie, or it might be a fighting movie like Rocky or Karate Kid. What, what makes those movies exciting, what makes us want to watch those things, is that they accomplish what we might consider the impossible. And one series of movies actually capitalizes on this idea, Mission Impossible. You've got Tom Cruise, right? He, he leads his team on an impossible mission. And, and every single time, they end up accomplishing this mission. And they come back for, you know, Mission Impossible 1 or 2 or 3 or 4. You know, there, there's always another one that they can come back for, another impossible mission that they just pulled off. 
Now, in a similar way, we have been given an impossible mission. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples the Great Commission. And it is our job to go and to make disciples. We are to win the lost, and we are to teach those who believe in Jesus to obey all that God has commanded in his word. And we aren't supposed to make disciples in one community, you know, for one year. We are supposed to make disciples uh, in all communities. And this has been going on for 2,000 plus years, and this will continue until Jesus returns. Now, on its face, that seems like an impossible mission that we have been given by Jesus. I mean, just consider what the disciples' mission was, what our mission is. The disciples were tasked to go to their own people, the Jews, and to tell them that God, the, the, the one who is the uncreated creator, became a man. And this man, he was delivered uh, to us, but, but not in, or this man was going to come and he was going to deliver us, but not in the way that, that, the, that the Jews of the time thought that they were going to be delivered. You see, they thought that, that he was going to come and, and take them out of this oppressive society in which they were in, and, and he was going to set up his kingdom. But, but that's not what happened, is it? No, Jesus was actually killed by the very people that the Jews thought he was going to deliver them from. And then they say, you must believe in this man. You must believe in this man that his death accomplished your salvation. That he is the one that you cannot work your way to God. That there is no amount of work that you can do. There is no amount of, of works righteousness that can earn your favor with God. The only way that you can become clean is to believe in Jesus. That's the only way that you can enter into his kingdom. That's the only way that you can enjoy it in all of its glory when Jesus returns. You must believe in Jesus. Or consider the message to the Greeks and the Romans who, who believed that truth and beauty and, and justice were, were cosmic ideals. And they dwelt uh, or existed in this immaterial realm which they sought to tap into in order to gain knowledge or in order to gain access to the truth. And the disciples were to go to them and tell them that there was only one true God who knows the truth and, and he is actually the truth. The truth did not remain immaterial, as we learned in the beginning of, of John. Right? The Logos became man. He actually came. The immaterial actually became the material. The truth became a man. The man and this man was from this backcountry town. This man was not famous. Uh, a man who was crucified as a common criminal on a Roman cross. And unless you believe in him, you are you're lost. Unless you believe in him, you will not know the truth. Unless you believe in him, you will not experience salvation. Not only were these cultural and religious beliefs a hindrance, but the gospel message tells all of us that, that we need a completely different heart. The gospel message tells us that, that we are not okay. But we don't just need to be more obedient, nor do we need to seek greater methods to discover ourselves or, or to, to tap into some sort of hidden potential that, that is deep down inside all of us. And if we would just read the right books or say the right things, that somehow we can, we can tap into that and we would be a better person. No, what we need to do is actually turn from ourselves. We need to change 
that completely turns us around, that, that takes us from being someone who believes that we're in control to somebody who believes that God is in control of our lives. And the only way that's going to take place is if we're given a completely different heart. Our will, our wants, our desires, there must be a complete change so that we will believe, so that we will love, so that we will desire the things of God. But here's the thing, God's word tells us that no one naturally desires the things of God. No one naturally seeks after the Lord. No one naturally pursues the heart transplant that they desperately need. Consider what God's word says in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And not only do we not desire the things of God, but but we are incapable of responding to the things of God. The Bible likens us to dead men. And not only are we dead men, but we are actually controlled by Satan and we are controlled by the passions of our flesh. Consider Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the picture of us in our natural state. This is why Israel continued to rebel against God over and over and over again, despite God sending prophet after prophet after prophet, despite him saying, you are going to go in exile, despite Judah, the southern kingdom, seeing Israel being exiled. And then Judah continues to do what they should not do and eventually gets sent into exile, cast out of the promised land. This is why man is absolutely and completely wicked. This is why killing and genocide and racism and injustice and exploitation happen in this world over and over and over again. This is who we are in our natural state. And even as Christians, we're still affected by our, our sinful nature. We've been changed, but we are still affected by that. Now, based on the cultural and the religious beliefs, based on who we are, we have to ask, why did anyone listen to the disciples? Why did Christianity even get off of the ground? Why has Christianity been around for the last 2,000 plus years? Why are people still coming to faith in Jesus? I'll say it's not not because we are better salesmen than those of other religions. If that were the case, we better be the best salesmen that is out there, right? We are telling people that nothing that they have done in their life is worth anything to God. They cannot earn their favor with God. They cannot please God in any way by their works. They can do nothing to earn their own salvation. And that is not about their glory. But it's about God's glory. It's not about self-realization. Instead, it is about self-denial. It is not that, that we are better salesmen than other people in other religions. 
It's not just that, that Christianity has its die-hard disciples either who are willing to die for the faith, even though I think that that certainly does give credence to Christianity. Every religion, though, has its die-hard fans. It has its followers who are do whatever they are asked, even paying the ultimate price. I watched a, a series on Netflix recently, Waco, and it, it highlights, uh, well, it's, it's a show, so it's not a documentary, but but it highlights, you know, what, what took place there in Waco with David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. And those who followed Koresh as you watch this show, as you go back and read historical accounts, I mean, they, they were loyal to him. They did whatever he asked them to do, whatever he told them to do, even when the compound was surrounded by FBI agents. And, and they were all free to leave. They decided that they were going to stay in there with him even after they have shot up the building, even if they've drove tanks into the place, they have decided that they are going to stay there with him. What happened? A number of people died, including women, women and children. Every religion has its die-hard fans who will give all, including those who follow Jesus. And the willingness to sacrifice all is certainly, certainly validates Christianity, but, but that doesn't completely explain why things have lasted all of these years. While it, why it is still going strong, why people are coming to faith in, in, in all over the world, especially when Christianity is so different from other religions. Every other religion has some sort of works-based aspect to it, some sort of you-can-work-your-way-to-God aspect, but Christianity doesn't. So it's by faith, it's by belief. When you really step back and consider it, when you take yourself out of, out, of, out of maybe what you have known your entire life, maybe you've grown up in the Bible Belt and you've grown up around Christianity and it just, it just seems natural to you. When, you. when you remove yourself from that context and really step back and think about what we are asking people to consider, what we are asking people to believe about God and what we are asking them to believe about ourselves, the message that we proclaim to the world is not an easy message. It is a hard message which means that the mission that Jesus has given his disciples in and of ourselves is an impossible mission. And so how? How are we supposed to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples? How have we accomplished that mission? How has people accomplished that for 2,000 plus years? Well, let me just say at the outset, we don't accomplish this mission in our own power. We accomplish this mission by the help of the Spirit in our life. Why do we need to understand that the Holy Spirit aids us in accomplishing our mission? And how does the Spirit aid us in accomplishing our mission? Well, those are the questions we're going to answer today. And so first, why do we need to know the Spirit helps us in accomplishing our mission? Well, there are some who are watching. There are some who are, who are here this morning who, who are wrestling with the idea of Christianity. You haven't yet come to believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, but, but, but you're wrestling with that. And let me just say, that is not just some intellectual thing that you're wrestling with. That is a spirit working on you. That is a spiritual struggle that you are experiencing right now. And there are some of you who are here. There are some of you who are, who are watching, who do believe. And, and you look out at your neighbors. You look out at your coworkers and, and your family members, and, and you, are, you are pleading with them to come to Christ. You are praying for them. You are preaching the gospel to them. You are, you are a living example of what it looks like to be a Christian and you're doing the best that you can with all of that. You weep over these people, especially as they continue in sin. 
And you need to know what is going on so that you don't get frustrated. So that you don't throw up your hands and walk away when these people decide that they are not going to follow Christ. Instead, they are going to continue in their sin. You need to know what's going on so that you will not quit talking to them, so that you will not quit praying for them. You need to know what's going on so that you will have the same determination, the same drive to carry on that William Carey had when he went to India. Carey, who is considered the father of modern missions, left for India in 1794. He did not see his first Hindu convert until 1800, December 1800, so almost 1801. Even after conversion of this first person, things were slow. I mean, he did have, you know, 1,400 converts by 1821, but most of those were Anglo-Indians. They were not the indigenous people. But Kerry stayed the course and he continued to persevere, seeking to reach Hindus for Christ. And he says this, Yet this is our encouragement. The power of God is sufficient to accomplish everything which He has promised. His promises are exceedingly great and precious respecting the conversion of the heathens. He stayed the course because he believed the promises of God in Scripture. He stayed the course because he believed that Jesus would build his church. He believed that the Spirit was at work to make his witness effective. And because he believed these things, he continued to carry on. And you also need to know what's going on because not only will you face dry spells in your ministry, but Jesus also tells us here that we will face persecution for our beliefs and for our witness. Look at the text in, verse, in chapter 15 again, verse 18 and 20. We, we went over this last week, so we won't, we won't go over it, but I just want to read it again. He says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also do your word. Jesus makes it clear the world hated him. And we can expect the world to hate us as well. But notice what Jesus tells us in John 15, 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He's saying, look, I'm going to leave. And I am going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to help you. He is going to bear witness about me, and then you are going to bear witness alongside of Him. This means that we are not on mission alone. The Spirit is with us. But again, as we bear witness about Christ, we will be persecuted. Jesus really wants to drive this point home, because then He comes back to it at the beginning of chapter 16. Jesus wants to make sure we understand this. In 16.2, Jesus says that his disciples will be cast out of the synagogues. They will be killed. And those who kill them, they will think that they were doing God a favor. They will think that they are doing God's work. That is the lot that Christians face. That is the difficulty we experience as we live on mission for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't doesn't tell us this to, to deter us from our mission. You might think that that's the guy, like, Jesus, you're really not setting things up well for us here. Uh, but, but Jesus is not doing that to deter us from our mission. Instead, Jesus is doing that so that we will know that when persecution comes, we will keep going. We won't fall away, he tells us in 
If we know what is going to happen, if we know that the Spirit is working alongside of us to accomplish our mission, then we will stick with it. We will keep going. We will continue to live life on mission. And so we know what's going to happen. We know persecution is going to come. We know that the Spirit works alongside of us. We know that Jesus is going to build His church. And hopefully knowing these things is going to keep us going. Hopefully it will help us to persevere. But how? How does the Spirit aid us? Let me say at the outset, first, the Spirit aids us in accomplishing our mission by convicting the world. The Spirit aids us in accomplishing our mission by convicting the world. Look at verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus tells the disciples, look, my my mission here is coming to an end. I am about to go to the cross soon. I'm going to accomplish the plan that the Father has sent me on. And I'm going to leave and I'm going to go back to the Father. And I know that that's making you sorrowful. I know that you don't want to see me leave. But guess what? I am going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to come and the Spirit is going to help you. He is going to aid you in accomplishing your mission to make disciples. The Helper is going to come. And the Helper to which Jesus refers is the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and He's going to comfort us. He's going to encourage us. He's going to teach us. And that's exactly what He does. He aids us in accomplishing our mission. Or more accurately, we might say we aid Him in accomplishing His mission as we preach the Gospel. Now, how does the Spirit work? Well, look at verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Spirit comes and the Spirit convicts. And what this means is that the Spirit works in the mind of the unsaved to show or expose to them their sin, to show or expose to them their unbelief. He shames the world, convincing them of their guilt. He calls them to repentance. He helps them to see and even convincing them of the truth of God's Word and of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross for us. And He convicts in three areas, we are told, and and Jesus fleshes these out. First, He convicts in the area of sin. So look at verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. We see that the Spirit convinces the world of their sin because they don't believe in Jesus. And this is the gracious act on part of of the Spirit. He helps the unsaved see that they are sin. He helps the unsaved see that they are rebelling against God. And that's what sin is. Sin is not just us breaking a few commandments here and there. Uh, Sin is actually all-out rebellion against God. Sin is us saying, God, I know better than you. I will control my life. I will sit on the throne of my life. That is what sin is. And the Spirit comes, and the Spirit convicts us of this rebellion. Rebellion that leads to disbelief in Jesus and not heeding the call to repentance. And He helps the world see, you are sinning. You are living in rebellion to God. You are living as if you're in control, and God is actually the one who is in control. That's the first activity of the Spirit. The Spirit secondly convicts in the area of righteousness. Look at verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. While Jesus was on earth, 
He called those who were the religious leaders of, of the day uh, to, you know, he, he spoke out against their perceived righteousness, much like the prophets did in the Old Testament. Consider what Isaiah says about those in his day. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah is speaking against the righteousness of those in his day, the perceived righteousness, what they believe was righteousness. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, your righteousness, what you think you are doing is right, is nothing more than a polluted garment, something to be thrown out to be thrown in the trash, to be put on the burn pile to burn. And he's saying, that's what your righteousness is like. And Jesus, much like Isaiah, you know, he confronted, as we walk through the gospel, he confronted the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He confronted them about their perceived righteousness as well. And the Spirit comes, and the Spirit takes up that work that Jesus leaves, and he expands it. And the Spirit comes into the non-believer's life and he convicts them of righteousness in order to help them to see that, that the righteousness that they think that they have earns them no favor with God at all. It is not doing anything for them. That their best works on their best day earns them no favor or praise from God. It does nothing to mend their relationship with the holy God. We can't earn our way back to God's good grace by working. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves righteous. But here's the thing. We don't naturally perceive this to be true. We believe that we can make ourselves righteous. We believe that we can earn favor with God. That, that is why most all religions in the world have some sort of workspace aspect to them. When you go and you study them, you see there's some sort of workspace aspect to these religions. There's some sort of belief in, in, the, in the world religions that we are inherently good and we just need to work that out of us somehow. We need to do some works to earn favor with God. Christianity says no. You are absolutely unholy, and you cannot approach a holy God. You cannot do that. And we don't naturally perceive this to be true, but the Spirit comes, and He graciously works in our life, and He convinces us of that. He helps us to see that, that our work earns us nothing, that our work earns us no favor with God, but it is all Jesus' work on our behalf. Lastly, the Spirit comes and He convicts in the area of judgment. Look at verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And judgment has to do with a person's evaluation or, or their decision about something. In this case, it is, it is Jesus. The Spirit comes into the life of the unsaved and He convicts, He exposes, He helps them to see that their judgment about Jesus is wrong. Jesus is not a common criminal. Jesus is not some lunatic. Instead, He is the God-sent Messiah who came to pay the price for our sins and the Spirit helps us to see that about Jesus so that we might turn to Him. He convinces us that Satan's judgment about Jesus is wrong. He convinces us about that so that we won't continue to follow Satan's judgment of this world and so we won't be judged like Satan has, is to be judged. So that we will not face the wrath of God. So that we won't experience everlasting punishment. And so these are the areas in which the Spirit convicts. And unless the Spirit works in our life pointing out that we live in rebellion to God, 
that our righteousness will not earn us favor with God and that our evaluation of Jesus is wrong, we will not come to faith in Christ. He is absolutely crucial that the Spirit would perform this work in the life of the unbeliever so that they might come to believe in Jesus. Now, the Spirit's convicting work doesn't mean that we don't work. Remember, I said that the Spirit aids us in our mission. We're accurate. We aid the Spirit in His mission. We must still, we must still live on mission. We must still call others to faith in Christ. We must preach and we must speak the gospel to a lost and dying world. Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Even though the Spirit works and even though the Spirit convicts, we must still preach. And I believe we are encouraged to live on mission because we know the Spirit is at work. And knowing the Spirit is at work, that the Spirit is out there. He is convicting the world of their need for salvation and Jesus. That should motivate us, even to a greater extent, to be on mission. It should motivate us to spread the gospel. It should motivate us to call folks to faith in Jesus. It, it should keep us from growing weary. It should allow us to press into a life on mission for Jesus. The Spirit aids us in our mission by convicting the world. And the Spirit aids us in another way as well. The Spirit aids us in accomplishing our mission by helping us understand the gospel. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and He will declare it to you. Now, reading that, some folks, they will run to the idea that the Spirit provides us with this extra-biblical knowledge, that, that He provides new revelation, particularly when it comes to that revelation of the last days. But that's not what's going on here. You have to remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples pre-crucifixion. He is telling them that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to, to not only help them understand his ministry better, but he's also going to help them understand the gospel better. He's going to help them understand how Jesus' work fits into the overarching plan of God. He's going to help them understand all of these things and all of the implications of the gospel, what that means for our life, what that means for our practice. And you see all of this worked out in, in the apostles' writings as we, as we read through those in the New Testament. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, they are not only able to understand the gospel and its implications, but they're also able to articulate that to the church through numerous letters, through numerous writings. They're able to help the church understand the gospel as they have understood the gospel. They're able to help the church understand the implications of the gospel. When you read through Paul's letters, you see most, the first half of Paul's letters are, are, are indicative in the sense that, that he's explaining the gospel. And then the, the next half of his letters are imperatives. He is, he is applying the gospel, the implications of the gospel. If this is true, this is how you should live. This is how you should think. This is how you should be encouraged. We see that over and over again. But the Spirit's work didn't stop with the apostles. It continues with us as professing believers in Jesus. We have the promised Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit has come to us, and the Spirit may not provide us with with new revelation in the sense of future revelation. We're not going to continue to write Scripture today or anything like that, but He does help us understand the Gospel. He does help us understand the implications of the Gospel for our life, as well as He helps us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus' life and Jesus' work. He helps us to grow in our knowledge of God's Word. As we read the Scriptures as believers, we have an advantage because we have the Spirit who is with us, who is helping us understand God's Word. And as we understand the Gospel in God more and more, we are empowered to articulate the Gospel to a lost and a dying world. As well as we are able to apply the Gospel in a greater way to our own churches, we seek to help those who believe in Jesus to obey all of what Jesus has commanded in His Word. The Gospel is not just for non-believers. The Gospel is for believers as well, which means that we should never, ever move past the Gospel. We are always to center on the Gospel. Our ministries in life should be Gospel-centered, shaped by the implications of believing and trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. And so we see that the Spirit, He aids us. The Spirit aids us in accomplishing our mission. He helps us to understand the gospel and its implications, as well as He helps us understand the person and work of Jesus. And He never stops helping us understand these things. As we continue through our life, we should grow in our knowledge of God's Word. We should grow in our knowledge of the gospel. We should understand how it applies to our life more and more and more as we continue to study because we have the Spirit who is teaching us. And again, because the Spirit is active and working in our lives and in the world, we can trust that our mission will be successful. We shouldn't get frustrated. We should not grow weary. We should not question what God is or or is not doing. Instead, we should continue to press on. We should continue to live life on mission for Jesus, seeking seeking to reach a lost and dying world with the hope that we have in Jesus, trusting that Jesus will build his church and we should be humbled we should be humbled that we are a part of God's plan to redeem a people for himself in his providence in his grace in his mercy we actually get to be a part of that we actually get to be the people who go out and speak the gospel to other people we actually get to be the people who see the fruit of that we see people grow in Christ we see people mature in Christ I mean think about it God takes those who are unholy, wretched sinners who live in absolute rebellion to Him. He works in our life through the Spirit. He sends people to preach the gospel to us. We believe the gospel. We turn from our sins. Our heart completely changes and we begin to follow Jesus. And then we go out and we do the same thing. Think about that. Think about just the honor and the privilege and how amazing it is that God actually uses us. I mean, that should humble us. That should amaze us. That should captivate us. Knowing that we are actually get to be a part of God's plan to bring people to Himself and that the Spirit actually comes and aids us in this mission should captivate us and motivate us to keep pressing on despite the setbacks, despite the difficulties, Despite the persecution, we are to continue to live on mission for Jesus. What amazing God we serve, what privilege, what honor that we have. Do you see that this morning? Are you captivated by Jesus this morning? Are you pressing into the mission that Jesus has given you 
this morning. And if you're not a believer here this morning, if you're watching this morning and you're not a believer, you haven't been captivated by Jesus, but you've tuned in, you've come this morning, wondering who Jesus is. And now, now is an opportunity for you to to turn to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, to believe that that it's not your righteousness, that it's not your works, but it's Jesus' work on your behalf that provides you with salvation. Now is an opportunity for you to repent of your sins and to profess Jesus, to turn to Him, and to live life on mission, to be captivated by Him. We're not going to have our normal time of response where will you come down, but... But I will be in the parking lot afterwards. Pastors will be in the parking lot afterwards. Our deacons will be in the parking lot afterwards. And if the Spirit is moving in your life and you want to talk to somebody about that, find me. I'll have my mask on so we can talk. But find me so that we can talk. We can talk further about the gospel and life in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that you don't leave us alone, that the Spirit comes and the Spirit helps us. Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of this. And God, we ask that you would help us to press into that, that we would be a people, that we would be a church that presses into living life on mission for you, that we are calling a lost and dying world to you, trusting, trusting that you are working there alongside of us, convicting. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.